Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Football's Civil War. Fans and politicians call foul over plans for a big money Super League. Flash crash. Bitcoin plunges after a week of crypto hype. And opening up, President Macron says Europe is working on plans to welcome U.S. tourists. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday. Let's begin, as always, with a check of the markets. U.S. stocks are on track for a lower start to the trading week. The Dow and the S&P begin today's session at record highs and are coming off their fourth straight week of gains. Stocks getting a boost from new signs that the U.S. economy is strengthening, as well as a positive start to first quarter earnings season. Coca-Cola kicking the week off with stronger-than-expected results. It says a key measure of global demand is back to pre-pandemic levels. GameStop is another pre-market gainer. Shares are rallying more than 12 percent on word that its CEO, George Sherman, will be stepping down soon. European stocks trading mixed right now, and it was a positive session in Asia with Chinese stocks, the outperformers. All right, let's get right, right to the drivers. J.P. Morgan confirming it will be financing the so-called European Super League. This after Europe's top football clubs announced their own league that could significantly change the sports economics. Twelve teams, including Manchester United, Liverpool and Real Madrid, are among the founding members of the breakaway competition. It's being met with strong criticism from many fans and football's governing bodies. But investors are welcoming the news. Shares of Manchester United up about 10 percent in the pre-market here in New York. Alex Thomas joins us live now with more. Alex, I don't know if you've had a chance to check out Twitter, but it is going crazy at this announcement. And it's an announcement that's angered, you name it, politicians, fans, former players and the sports regulators. Walk me through what the next step with all of this is and talk to me about the overall impact on the future of football. Yeah, there's a real contradiction, isn't there, between the outrage factor we're seeing on social media, the loudest voices tend to be the critical ones right now, versus what you just said to our viewers moments ago about what the stock market reaction was with Manchester United's share price on the up. And this comes down to what could be the most radical shakeup in the sport's history. You know, football or soccer is a game that's arguably the most popular on the planet, goes back well over 100 years, and has always been based, in the main, on merit. You have leagues and you can get promoted to a higher league or get relegated down to a lower league. You don't have the franchise system, except with Major League Soccer, that you do have in other US pro sports. It's no surprise that some of the teams that are driving this potential European Super League 
and mainly have American owners who are used to that system see a greater value for the teams and the players in playing other big name sides more often and playing less well-known teams less often. So in terms of the products for a global digital fan, which is what they're after, it's certainly going to be attractive. There are a number of hurdle, hurdles and obstacles for the breakaway teams to get over first. And I think initially we're going to see this play out possibly in the courts. Alex, you know, I think there's a longing for maintaining the purity of this sport. But wasn't this inevitable? Um, you look at sports uh, here in the U.S., they have become uh, more of a business. Um, why is this coming as such a surprise? Because the U.S. pro sports were set up like that from the very start. So they continue to try and drive their revenues <coughs> upwards. We, for example, in the NFL and in the NBA, when arguably they've reached, <coughs> excuse me, saturation point in their domestic market in North America, they've looked to expand globally, you know, either physically taking games or even teams abroad, or certainly in terms of improving their television and customer base digitally uh, and in terms of global broadcast deals. Um, football and soccer has done that to a certain extent, but it's still got the handcuffs, if you like, of a of a dated structure. You know, you have a national governing body in each country that controls the game. The clubs say, we want to have control of how we raise the money and where it is spent. And the big issue with that is, does that mean grassroots football or soccer is left out? The lower league teams, the teams that only get a few hundred hardy souls turning up week in, week out. Uh, these big Super League clubs, potential Super League clubs say they will have solidarity payments and that, that those will be more than UEFA, European football's governing body. UEFA are facing an existential crisis, really. No wonder they're going to take legal action. All right, Alex Thomas, my guess is the debate will go on. Thanks so much. After a hype-filled week in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin suffered a flash crash over the weekend, plunging to 14 percent in less than an hour before rebounding. Claire Sebastian joins me live now. Great to see you, Claire. What a weekend it was if you were, are a cryptocurrency investor. Yeah, not a very relaxing weekend if you're if you're heavily into to Bitcoin, Alison. As you say, it fell Saturday night 14% in less than an hour. It has since rebounded to just under $57,000, nowhere near the dizzy heights that we saw at the beginning of last week where it came close to $65,000 ahead of that Coinbase IPO. And as for why this happened, well, it's not exactly clear. There are a lot of people pointing to different types of triggers. There's chatter around uh, the idea that there were possible blackouts in China where cryptocurrency currency is mining is concentrated that might have taken some mining pools offline there's chatter around the fact that turkey has recently banned uh, cryptocurrency payments and other people are saying that this market simply got overhyped around the Coinbase IPO, and it was time for, for a little bit of a pullback. But what we saw is what we see often uh, in all asset classes when you get these kinds of sort of flash crashes is that selling begets more selling. According to uh, Bitcoin Analytics website bybt.com, there were $9 billion worth of liquidations in people who were long Bitcoin, those people who were betting on Bitcoin to go up. Now, those liquidations happen when people are leveraged in those trades, when they have borrowed money and then the value drops sharply and they can't make those margin calls. So that's what we saw. Uh, that is why the sort of the flash crash effect. But as I said, this has rebounded a little bit. I think the lesson here is there's a lot of leverage in this market and it's still going to be very volatile. Very volatile indeed. So I understand that China is pushing ahead with a digital version of the yuan. Could China be warming to just the broader 
you know, the broader scope of digital assets in general, which would be a 180 from uh, its usual stance. It had a crackdown on crypto trading back in 2017. Yeah, so China has been working on a sort of e-version of the yuan for, for a number of years now. The news today is that the a deputy governor of the, the central bank has said that they might let foreign athletes and visitors use this digital currency in the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. So that would expand the sort of practice pilot projects they've been doing beyond certain Chinese cities where they've always already been rolling this out. And if this leads eventually or helps lead to a nationwide rollout of this digital currency, that would make China the first major economy to do this. The the European Union is also working on a digital version of the euro. And the reason why this matters is because there's a couple of suggestions. One is that China wants to sort of internationalize its currency and try to break the stranglehold of the dollar. This is something that the, the deputy of the central bank pushed back on. The other concern is that in a society that is already so cashless uh, and dependent on sort of tech companies for payments, China, Beijing wants to centralize that uh, and therefore potentially some have suggested use that as a method of keeping tabs on its citizens. So that is where we are now. They said that they might be able to use this during the Beijing uh, 2022 Winter Olympics, Alison. Okay, Claire Sebastian, thanks for all that great context. India reported a record number of new COVID cases today, bringing new infections over the past five days to more than a million. The capital, New Delhi, faces an acute shortage of ICU beds and oxygen. It enters a strict six-day lockdown tonight. Paula Hancock joins me live now. You know, this just gets devastating um, and more devastating by the day. Is that six-day lockdown long enough to make a dent in what's happening? Well, Alison, I think at this point, officials are thinking it will be better than doing nothing because the health system is really overburdened and overwhelmed by the sheer number of uh, of cases that are being confirmed every single day. Yet again, another record number, as you say, uh, over a million in five days have been confirmed. So it is uh, a case of there's a lack of hospital beds. We know there's less than 100 ICU beds in Delhi itself, and that was on Sunday. And that is a city of more than 21 million people. We know there's a lack of oxygen. We know there's a lack of the the COVID treatment, uh, remdesivir. In fact, speaking to our team on the ground, they're saying that many people who have relatives that need help, that need medical attention, uh, are giving up on the hospitals because they say they are so overwhelmed, they are simply not answering the phone, and they're turning to social media, asking people if they can provide help, if they can provide treatment or the plasma and drugs. Uh, So it just gives you an idea of how overwhelmed uh, this system is. And there's also, uh, we're hearing a lot of complaints about the mixed messaging coming from the Prime Minister Modi. Uh, Now, on the one hand, he's asking for millions uh, of people who have been celebrating uh, one of the key uh, religious festivals uh, in uh, in India to to not congregate physically, to do it uh, celebrations more symbolically. Uh, And then at the same time, he is going to political rallies. He is speaking to uh, large crowds, most of whom are wearing masks, not all, but none of whom are social distancing. So there is criticism being laid at his door as well, that he is uh, giving mixed messages. Alison. Talk me through the vaccine distribution there. Well, certainly it started fairly well, and this was uh, this was the hope because we know that they are uh, producing some of the vaccine within the country uh, as well. But 
the, the sheer numbers, if you think of over a million in five days, have just overtaken uh, what is possible to keep up with within the vaccination system itself. And we're hearing from officials what was really problematic in India, which is what we're hearing around the world, is these different variants, uh, the more infectious uh, variants uh, which are causing this virus to spread through the population even faster. And then you do have events, for example, like this, uh, uh, this religious festival where millions of people came down to uh, the, uh, the, the riverbanks of the river Ganges. What they do is they go into the waters. They believe that they can wash away uh, their sins, a very significant uh, religious day for them. But the fact is you have an immense amount of people in the same area with very little social distancing. So events like that also uh, cause more problems. Alison. Okay, Paula Hancock, thanks very much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Russia's prison service says it has moved opposition politician Alexei Navalny to a hospital for prisoners after reports that his health was deteriorating. Officials say he's in a satisfactory condition and is being treated with vitamin therapy. Navalny has been on a hunger strike since the end of March, and his allies have called for protests in support of him. Let's get more from CNN's Sam Kiley. He joins me live from Moscow. So what's what's his condition right now? Um, His Navalny's press secretary, uh, Sam, said that Navalny was dying in prison. Yeah, that may be something of an exaggeration, but it's not an exaggeration to say that uh, his uh, his own physicians have told us based on evidence that they have seen of blood tests that he has very high uh, levels of potassium in his bloodstream. There are deep concerns indeed that he could suffer renal failure and indeed possible heart failure as a consequence. Uh, First of all, because he has been very enfeebled by the Novichok attack on him back in uh, August last year when he was uh, poisoned with a nerve nerve agent. And then, of course, he's now on day 20 of a hunger strike. Now, the earlier today, the authorities here in Russia moved him from his penal colony where he was staying to the hospital of a nearby uh, penal colony where they are saying he's being treated with vitamin supplements. They have not yet indicated uh, one way or the other whether they are going to actually force feed him to try to keep him alive through this process. But it's also very clear and they've made it very clear among his supporters that they have brought forward mass demonstrations that they're going to hold against uh, Vladimir Putin's continued presidency and in support of Alexei Navalny to Wednesday uh, because they are concerned about his failing health. And this all coming amid international condemnation uh, from the United States, from many people, many governments across Europe uh, with Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor to the Biden administration, saying that bilaterally threats had been made to the Putin administration of consequences that would follow uh, if he died. He would not say, Mr. Sullivan would not say what those consequences would be in a public forum on CNN, uh, but he did say threats had been made. So this is uh, the the, the medical state of this uh, leading opposition figure is something both of national but international concern right now uh, as we look forward to the now it's sort of a clocking a ticking clock issue for him. Every day that goes by when he doesn't eat, clearly his health is going to deteriorate pretty rapidly. Alison? Okay, Sam Kiley, live in Moscow. Many thanks. Closing arguments will be heard later today in the trial of former, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. 
Jurors have listened to three weeks of emotional testimony documenting the killing of George Floyd last year after Chauvin kneeled on his neck and back for more than nine minutes. It's the last time the jury will hear from either side before deciding their verdict. Authorities say a man has been detained in connection with raging fires in Cape Town, South Africa. The blazes began in Table Mountain National Park and have destroyed buildings, including the University of Cape Town, Cape Town Library's historic reading room. The fires are described as out of control. David McKenzie has more from Johannesburg. The fire began on Sunday morning on the iconic slopes of Table Mountain. It's believed to have been started by a homeless person, but there's at least one investigation into arson. The fire ripped down the side of the mountain and got into the University of Cape Town, where several buildings were ablaze, including a library. Thousands of students were evacuated. They are sheltering in different buildings around the city. Authorities believe that they had it in control, but in the early morning hours, a strong wind picked up and ripped the fire around the mountain towards the city bowl, where at least one neighborhood has been evacuated. More than 250 Firefighters are fighting this blaze. They think it might be difficult to use aerial bombardments with water of the blaze today because of that wind, and it's unclear when they will get it under control. David McKenzie, CNN, Johannesburg. Still to come on First Move, Toyota unveils its first EV. Can the pioneer of the hybrid car catch the competition with its new electric range? And a sunny outlook for Americans hoping for a European holiday. France says the EU is working on a plan to let them in. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to pull back in early trading. A bit of consolidation happening after hitting fresh records on Friday. The Dow and the S&P and the Nasdaq all rose 1 percent or more last week, with almost 200 stocks on the S&P 500, hitting 52-week highs, a positive signal for the Wall Street bulls. First quarter earnings season ramps up this week with uh, earnings reports from Netflix, Intel, IBM, Johnson & Johnson, and other big names reporting. This follows strong results from major U.S. banks last week. And it's a merger Monday in the office furniture space. Herman Miller is buying rival Knoll in a deal worth almost $2 billion. Knoll shares surging in the pre-market. Herman Miller shares are pulling back. Toyota's commitment to an electric future took a leap forward in China overnight. The Japanese automaker launched its all-electric SUV concept at the Shanghai Auto Show. Toyota plans to offer around 70 electrified models globally by 2025. Bob Carter is executive vice president of sales at Toyota North America, and he joins me live. Great to see you. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. So this, first of all, it's a big deal just to have an in-person conference. This conference happening in Shanghai, the big onstage reveal for Toyota, uh, the unveiling of this new battery electric SUV. Uh, walk me through uh, what, what that SUV is like. Well, first of all, it's great to be back at a global auto show and, and see people gathering to view our products. But last night we did introduce the BZ4X 
It's our first uh, re-entry back into the full battery electric market. It's an SUV, four-wheel drive, crossover. It's uh, a little larger than our most popular vehicle, which is the RAV4. But more importantly, as you mentioned, the BZ is going to be our new sub-brand where we'll be introducing not only the BZ4X, but other vehicles as they come to market between now and 2025. So with this SUV, how much is Toyota really playing catch-up, at least in China, to uh, the no-frills tiny car made by GM that's really been a hit there. Why introduce a mid-size SUV to compete against that kind of tiny zippy one from, from General Motors? Well, Allison, we've been in the electrified automobile business for over 20 years with our hybrids, our plug-in hybrids, our fuel cells. In fact, if you take a look at all of our electrified vehicles, uh, our sales have more than exceeded the combined of all other automakers. We had been in previously into battery electrics. We, our first battery electric was introduced back in 1997 with the RAV4 uh, electric, and then we re reintroduced it in uh, 2012. But uh, now is the tipping point, we believe, for electrification. So this is going to be one of our vehicles on a very broad portfolio of battery electrics, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and fuel cells, because we don't believe that any one technology is right for every customer. So it's, uh, it's our plan to offer all these uh, technologies to consumers and let them decide what fits their needs. Now, so far, Toyota has been largely unscathed by the global shortage of semiconductors uh, as we've endured the pandemic. But last month, Toyota actually halted production at plants in North America because of a squeeze in supplies, including uh, plastic components, petrochemicals and semiconductors. What's the update on this? Have, have there been any furloughs because of this, uh, this squeeze in getting these supplies? No, no, no furloughs. That's outside our business model. But uh, we've fortunately been able to recover very well. Our, our demand right now is near record. We had a record first quarter. We had a, a fantastic March. And April is, is showing to be uh, much the same at, on a record pace. Uh, without a doubt, the supply chains are fragile at this moment. But we, uh, our production over the next two months, April, May, actually looks to be very good. June, July, a little cloudy at this time, but we have our manufacturing, our R&D, and our purchasing teams working on that. Uh, so overall, there will be some minor disruptions expected, but overall, we, we remain bullish on the outlook for 2021. Let's talk Tesla for a moment. Is Toyota looking to be more of a friend or competitor to Tesla? I know that there is an operating system called the Arene that can go up against the Tesla, essentially technology that allows new features to be installed in the car's existing hardware. But this technology can also run in Teslas as well, right? Right. Well, overall, Allison, we don't believe that one technology feeds, uh, fills all the needs of consumers in North America. So battery electrics and electrification are the future of automobiles. However, there are consumers that live in the Midwest or in parts of the East Coast more remote that a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid may be a better alternative for them. Um, the average cons consumer only commutes about 30 miles a day in the U.S. So is it really necessary to have a BEV that has a three or 400 mile range where you're carrying all that expensive weight of batteries around? 
So our strategy is to really offer all four different technologies and then let the consumer decide which technology best fits their needs. Yes or no, is Toyota considering restarting a partnership with Tesla to jointly create a small electric SUV or any other vehicle? Any partnership here with Tesla in, in, uh, in the future? Well, no announcements today, Allison, but uh, we do have partnerships uh, with many other brands. We have partnerships in different parts of the globe with Suzuki and Subaru and Mazda. And one of the vehicles that I mentioned previously back in 2012, that was a direct partnership with, uh, with Tesla. So uh, we're open to collaboration with other brands and you'll continue to see that from us in the future. Okay, pleasure speaking with you, Bob Carter, Executive Vice President of Sales at Toyota Motor North America. Thanks so much. And you're watching First Move, the opening bell is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosikin. That was the opening bell on Wall Street. And as expected, uh, we got a lower open across the board for U.S. majors with stocks pulling back from record highs. Tech stocks seeing the biggest losses in early trading. Ten-year Treasury yields are ticking higher after falling last week for the third week out of four. Yields pull back amid some concern that the uh, U.S. economic growth that we're seeing may normalize later this year after uh, this year's spring surge. The rate of COVID infections also playing into sentiment. More than 5 million COVID cases were diagnosed globally the past seven days, an all-time record driven by soaring numbers in Brazil and India. In the U.S., Dr. Anthony Fauci saying a decision on the fate of the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine should come later this week. He expects officials will give the go-ahead to administer the vaccine again, perhaps with new restrictions or warnings on the risks of blood clots. Mark Zandi joins me live now. He is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to see you again. Thanks, Allison. Good morning. Good morning. So we are in April 2021. I know I've spoken with you several times beginning during the height of the pandemic. Talk with me about your outlook now for the U.S. economy based on what you're seeing. It's booming. Uh, the uh, data for March uh, was fantastic. You know, I've been uh, an economist, a professional economist for almost 30 years, and I don't think I've seen a month where the data has been as u uniformly strong as it was in the month of March. And I think that's the beginning of a string of uh, a bunch of good months, you know, all the way through this time next year. We've got the end of the pandemic uh, that's going to wind down, that's going to support growth. We've got lots of fiscal support from the government, the American Rescue Plan, and additional support. And of course, there's a lot of pent-up demand. People have been sheltering in place for a year, particularly high-income households, and they've got a lot of savings. So you mix a lot of pent-up demand with a lot of savings, and that's a lot of spending. So I expect some really good things for this economy over the next year, Allison. Yeah, let me break out a couple of the things that you said here. First of all, the savings rates globally. What have you found um, just globally, how, uh, how people around the world are, are saving their money? Yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, across the globe, we've seen uh, households uh, stay home, right, uh, shelter in place. And again, these are mostly high-income households, uh, high-middle-income households who have the ability to work from anywhere. Uh, you know, they've got good health care. They could shelter in place. And uh, because they weren't traveling, because they weren't going to uh, restaurants and ball games and getting their hair cut, uh, they saved a lot of money. Uh, and so over the past year, 
uh, you know, you add it all up, uh, it's about six and a half uh, percent of global GDP. So over five trillion dollars in excess saving, savings, six and a half percent of GDP. So that's that's a lot of cash out there that could fuel a lot of spending. Now, you did mention the infrastructure bill that's on the table in Congress. What kind of momentum will that give to uh, the U.S. economy if that goes through? Uh, that's big. It's not for this year or for next year. I mean, that'll, that would be likely passed at the end of this year, and it probably won't take effect because this is infrastructure spending. These are big projects. They take a lot of time to get going and for the money to get out there into the economy. So that really won't uh, have an impact on the U.S. economy until 2023 or 24. But then it will add a lot of a lot of growth. Uh, those are that's going to create a lot of jobs, uh, you know, manufacturing and construction and transportation and distribution. So a lot of good paying jobs and lots of communities across the country, but that's a little later down the road. And of course, it has to get passed into law and and there's a lot of work to be done there. And you mentioned jobs. A lot of those jobs that it could bring into the fold would be male dominated fields like manufacturing and transportation. That kind of leaves out women, women who've really been impacted in this pandemic. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, It's going to be male dominated. By my calculation, about 60 percent of the jobs created by the infrastructure plan would probably go to men, about 40% to women. But that's not the end of the story. We are going to see the president uh, unveil uh, a uh, American family plan. So this would expand out uh, social services. Uh, this would be, you know, everything from health care to education to child care, uh, housing, that kind of thing. And that would be more uh, in female-dominated industries, you know, like, like, like the healthcare industry or the educational industry, for example. So that would be 60-40 women to men. So uh, my sense is when uh, all of the uh, all of this comes together later this year and we get a piece of legislation, uh, I think it will create a lot of jobs for both men and women. Okay, we should only hope so. Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, great seeing you today. Thanks. Peloton stock is falling this morning after the fitness company refused to recall one of its treadmills linked to 79 accidents. It follows multiple reports of children being trapped by the machine. Paula Monica joins me live now. Paul, great to see you. This story is um, it's a tough one for Peloton, isn't it? Um, this is its business model. It, it basically is being told to recall you know, machines that are in households that have pets or children. Yeah, this is, I think, a very difficult situation for Peloton right now, particularly because, you know, tragically, you did have one child uh, who uh, reportedly died as a result of uh, you know being too close to this machine. Peloton has maintained that they don't need to recall the treadmills because they've already warned their users that they should not allow young children and pets to be close to the machine. They have given the consumers all of the information that they need about how to operate it safely. And uh, that they think is a reason why they shouldn't have to actually recall the device. Uh, I don't know if it's wise for the company to be getting into a bit of a row with regulators who think that there should be a recall. And clearly the market agrees the stock is falling today and is been uh, tumbling all year after a stunning run last year. It was definitely one of the kind of work from home, stay at home beneficiaries of COVID-19 as a stock. Yeah. And the safety component will certainly be top of mind for consumers who are looking to go and let's say buy a Peloton. How does this company overcome that? 
Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, clearly right now it is a war of words between Peloton and regulators. I think the company probably may have to eventually cave and, uh, you know, follow the lead of regulators. There aren't that many companies that defy Washington when, the, you know, consumer watchdog groups come out and say that you should recall a product. Uh, you know, it may not be sufficient for Peloton to just say that we're warning our customers. Obviously, keep in mind, too, that this is just one of Peloton's many products. Uh, you know, uh, the treadmill is not the only Peloton device out there that has become incredibly popular in the past couple of years as people, you know, increasingly maybe dropping gym memberships and setting up their own workout stations at home, particularly during the pandemic. Yeah, and I just want to point out the video that you just saw of the children near the treadmill. Uh, though those children, there was a child that was injured. That ch- that child did not die in that incident. Just want to point that out. Paula Monica, thanks so much uh, for your reporting. Up next, French charm. President Macron promises Americans a European summer holiday. Can he deliver? Europe is working on a plan to reopen to U.S. tourists as early as this summer, according to the French President Emmanuel Macron. The EU is working on a travel pass for people who have been vaccinated or can show a negative PCR test. Fred Pleiken joins me live now. Fred, you know, it's not lost upon really anyone about the need of mm-hmm. uh, there is to get those 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 tourism dollars, all that revenue in. But is let's say is France yeah. is, is Macron jumping the gun here? I mean, you look at the covid case numbers, the, uh, the death numbers, uh, the death mm. toll rising to more than 100,000 last week. Is he maybe, you know, getting a little ahead of himself and, and just even putting this in the planning stages? Mm. Maybe he is, but but I think you're absolutely right. And I think you used exactly the right word there, Alice. And I think need is really a word that a lot of European countries, certainly the ones that have a lot of tourism, would, would use in that case. France obviously has a lot of tourists every year. U.S. tourists, a lot of people coming across the Atlantic to come to France, but also some other countries as well. You look at Greece, for instance, you look at Spain, you look at Portugal. Those countries can't wait to open up because such large amounts of their yearly revenues have been lost with people from America, for instance, not being able to come there, but also, quite frankly, people from European countries as well. And it certainly seems as though Emmanuel Macron seems to be sort of making a bet on the future, if you will. As you know, a lot of the uh, EU countries, they had a pretty sluggish start to their vaccination campaigns here in Germany, in France as well, Italy, for instance, they had a lot of trouble getting enough vaccine to vaccinate quickly. That's really been picking up the pace, though, and that seems one of the reasons why Emmanuel Macron seems quite confident that he could be able to possibly make it happen, possibly even as early as maybe May or June, to really get tourism rolling again. You're absolutely right. The European Union has a plan as well uh, for an EU vaccination passport. Now, that first and foremost is, of course, an uh, intra-EU thing where people from European countries will be able to travel within the EU more easily. But, of course, uh, also for people from outside the EU, like, for instance, the U.S., there will be certain standards, like, for instance, having been vaccinated, like, for instance, a PCR test. But what I thought was really interesting is that the EU is also looking at people, for instance, who have gone through a COVID-19 infection and can show that they have antibodies 
place, those would also then be able to travel, of course, as well. So there are certainly plans. There are countries that are really keen to open up. The Greeks, for instance, are going to start opening up uh, um, right now, really. They're going to start letting people from the EU back in. They also said that U.S. tourists can also go to a lot of the Greek islands, can also go to Athens, for instance, as well. They definitely want tourism back because so much revenue depends on tourism and, quite frankly, so many jobs here also on the continent. And, and really, when you speak to people in European countries, especially those countries where you do have a lot of tourists from the U.S., you can tell they really want those tourists from the U.S. back because there was so much money also uh, going uh, to those countries from the U.S. So maybe Emmanuel Macron is jumping the gun just a little bit. However, it does seem as though he's making a bet on that vaccination campaign here in Europe, really gaining steam, which it has been, and then just hoping that the summer uh, will get a lot better than the past couple of months have been here in Europe. Allison? Yeah, we can only hope. Fred, Fred Blyken, thanks so much. Mm. Elsewhere, signs of hope and progress in the battle against the virus. Just a week before uh, Anzac Day, New Zealand is now allowing Australians to travel to the country quarantine-free. Angus Watson has the story from Melbourne. A travel bubble opening between Australia and New Zealand on Monday, with the first of 140 flights planned this week across the Tasman Sea with no passengers having to quarantine on arrival. That offer previously was available to New Zealanders travelling into Australia. Now New Zealand returns the favour, making that one-way travel corridor into a two-way travel bubble. New Zealand says that will mean billions for its economy with Australian tourist dollars targeted. And of course, families split by these border closures for over a year will be reunited again. It's really important we're going back for Mike's dad's funeral and we are taking this little guy to meet his family for the first time. So he's just 10 months old, so it's pretty exciting for us. There's no replacing the, the, the human touch um, and those human relationships. So we're looking forward to getting over to New Zealand, speaking to our people, making sure that their welfare is great, but also that our business continues to prosper. Both countries are entering into this agreement tentatively. Each say that they're willing to pop this travel bubble if there is an outbreak of COVID-19 on either side of the Tasman Strait. Both countries have had success with that sort of strictness when it comes to COVID-19. Just around 2,500 cases in New Zealand since the pandemic began and just under 30,000 in Australia. That platform means the countries want to extend these travel bubbles further into the region. New Zealand wants to incorporate Pacific Islanders into its travel bubble. Australia has earmarked Singapore as a potential country that it could have a travel bubble with. But that will also rely on vaccine rollouts in Australia and New Zealand, where governments have been criticised for being slow to get vaccines to their people. Angus Watson in Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on First Move, furious reactions from football fans after Europe's top clubs announced their own league. That story next. Back to our top story, 12 European clubs planning to launch a breakaway football league. The president of Real Madrid, who's the first chairman of the Super League, said this. Football is the only global sport in the world with more than 4 billion fans. And our responsibility as big clubs is to respond to their desires. But many fans say this is not what they want. I want to bring in Tim Payton. He's from the Arsenal Supporters Trust, and he joins me live. Great to see you. Hello. 
So talk with me about whether you think this will actually happen, that this Super League will happen, given, you know, the biggest clubs in the U.K. want it, investors seem to like it. Can it be stopped? Well, we hope it can be stopped. The Arsenal Supporters Trust and all the Arsenal fans I've spoken to and seen online, they deplore this. It's the death of football as we know it. Sporting merit is being ended, guaranteed entry, competitions run for money and not the interest of the fans. We have to stop it. But why are you why are you so against it, especially since your own team stands to benefit from being part of this league? It's a misnomer to think that I'm automatically happy if Arsenal play in this league. I'm only happy if Arsenal play in it because they've qualified on sporting merit. How can I look a fan of Leicester City or West Ham in the eye and say, we're playing in that league next year, you're not, even though they finished higher in the league. What's the point in me going to games next week and the week after if it's already predetermined that Arsenal have been self-selected into a league because they sat down in a room with JP Morgan and divvied up some money? It's abhorrent. It's against everything that is that the English game is, is founded on. The principles of the English game, it runs roughshod over them. So those who disagree with what you're saying, they ask, isn't football already run as a business? Isn't this inevitable, given that UK football has welcomed in billionaires and the money that they bring? It may have been inevitable when you let in, you know, Americans who care nothing for our sport, don't bother to meet with us, bring over their franchise model, which may work very well in the US, but doesn't fit 150 years of tradition in the UK. And quite frankly, all they want to do is, is, is screw pounds or screw dollars out of our clubs. So they're not going to care. But it's not inevitable. The British government is speaking up against this. UEFA and the FA are speaking up against this. And it's like a revolution of fans. I, I, I really believe that if we all stay unified on this, we will see these greedy people off, get their fingers off our game. Let me hear your crystal ball uh, idea here about what action you think fans will take. Do you think they will boycott the the club? Will they switch teams? English football fans don't switch teams. But what we do do is we protest. We make noise. We may go to the games and protest. We may not go. We'll boycott commercial activity. We'll work closely with government who already have a policy commitment to introduce a regulator for football. I think they might expedite that. We're calling on the government to introduce a a luxury tax or a so-called super tax. They think they're the super league. Let them pay more money back. We are going to fight them at every single level we can. They have declared war on English football and its fans, and they will find we are incredibly resilient and we will not give up on the game we love lightly. What what recourse do you have, though, and and what uh, leverage do you have? And if you can talk to the folks who are who are looking to uh, make this into this kind of business, what would you want to tell them right now? Well, first of all, I'd tell them it won't be a commercial success. Who wants to watch the same old team playing the same old team each year, guaranteed entry, churn after churn of game to reach the knockout stage? And we will come after you. We will challenge it commercially, but we will also come after you through Parliament and through government. We will come after you by working with UEFA and the FA to exclude these breakaway teams. We, we cherish and love our clubs. They're institutions, but they're institutions that are based on sporting merit and competitive balance. And we will fight it in every way that we can. And you see that today. I, I'd be very surprised if your researchers and producers have been able to find you someone to come on and defend this model, because I can't see anybody out there that will do that. Well, investors are defending it, but we will keep watch and see what happens here. Well, they would, wouldn't they? (laughs) 
Well, it's all about money, isn't it? (laughs) Tim Tim Payton, Arsenal uh, Supporters Trust spokesman. Pleasure talking with you and getting your perspective. Thank you. CNN reached out to the Super League for further information about its proposals, but we're yet to hear back. NASA's Mars helicopter successfully completing its first flight on the Red Planet. Landing, touchdown, and spin down. The helicopter named Ingenuity sent back a picture of the shadow it cast on the ground. This is NASA's first power powered, controlled flight on another planet. Today's flight lasted about 40 seconds. And it could change the way we study the red planet. Michael Holmes reports. It's the little helicopter with a very big mission. NASA's mini chopper named Ingenuity became the first aircraft to achieve powered, controlled flight on another planet. Ingenuity's first flight is intentionally brief. Perseverance images showing us um, grounded at first. It's, it's actually a video, which is great. It's grounded at first and then shows us hovering our three meters above the Martian surface and then touching back down. It's amazing, brilliant. A short hop that is the culmination of many hits and misses. Ingenuity has so far survived the frigid Martian nights after separating from the Perseverance rover, relying on its solar-powered batteries to fire up internal heaters. But an initial spin test of its rotors delayed a scheduled flight attempt due to problems with a timer. NASA says the helicopter later successfully completed the test spinning its blades at 2,400 revolutions per minute, the speed it needs to take off. Scientists say having a bird's-eye view of the terrain could revolutionise the way we study new planets. Ingenuity will open new possibilities and will spark questions for the future about what we could accomplish with an aerial explorer. Could we image areas not visible from space or that a rover couldn't reach? Could a helicopter scout ahead for rovers and help plot the most efficient course for the best science? Flying on the red planet presented some difficult engineering challenges because of the low gravity of Mars and an atmosphere that is 1% the density of Earth. NASA engineers sent along a good luck charm. Attached to ingenuity is a piece of fabric from the wing of the Wright Brothers Flyer, which carried the first powered controlled flight on Earth. Michael Holmes, CNN. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. CNN's special coverage of the closing arguments in the trial of Derek Chauvin begins after a quick break. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 